0: If you have your Bible this morning, would you turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 7. We've been looking at a, a topic, uh, the Son of God, the, the life of Jesus and you, and I have to admit I took the whole concept of the Son of God, this movie came out and they were going to show us in, in, in a visual way. Who Jesus was and and I prefer to go to the book I prefer to look at what God says about himself and so we've been studying the the life of Jesus not just about the life of Jesus though what about the life of Jesus that impacts us and today we're talking about the stain now Jesus was not stained he was perfect if you've been listening to the music and and we'll sing some more of it here as we take communion in in a few minutes but if you've, been, if, if you've been paying attention, Jesus was without sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That's what the first verse of that song, Jesus Messiah, is all about. Jesus didn't have a stain, but he dealt with stains. What's the toughest stain you've ever dealt with? Uh, I went to the website, and I, I just had to, to find out top ten stains that are hardest to get out. What are the top ten stains hardest to get out? Number one, they say, is butter. I don't believe it, but anyway, butter. Okay, maybe better. That would be good. Tomato or anything tomato-based, that red is hard to get out. Chocolate, that's bad news for me because that's one of the four food groups for me, chocolate. Blueberries or any purple uh, berry stain, those are tough to get out. Mustard, if you like mustard on your hot dog, you wear a tie, that's a a bad deal. Red Kool-Aid, you ever tried to get red Kool-Aid out of carpet? That's kind of hard to get out. Uh, Here's another one, motor oil. That's why I don't change my oil anymore, I'll let somebody else do that. Blood, especially if you've dried it or if you put heat on it, even hot water will set blood so that it's almost impossible to get out. Lipstick, and of course the favorite ink in the, you know, you leave a pen in your pocket and you wash it and the, the ink stains the shirt. It's almost impossible to get out. We were on our way to a, a vacation, we were just getting ready the night before a vacation many, many years ago. And our children were small, and Kathy had gotten the kids some new clothes. You know, vacation time, and you get kids' clothes. And she washed them, and she put them in the dryer. She left the dryer open for a minute, uh, went to do something else. And when she came back, she shut the dryer, put the dryer sheet in there, and dried it. And when she got it out, she realized that the kids had put their crayons in the dryer. Now, just so you know, that's, that's a stain, and whoever it was, they particularly liked red. That was their favorite crayon of the day. And so there were several red uh, variations in there. Uh, of course, my white dress shirts happened to be in there too. So it was, it, was, uh, it was, by the way, waterless hand cleaner, a whole lot of that scrubbing, and we actually didn't have to throw away anything. But, but it was a tough stain. We were supposed to leave early in the morning, and it was about 2 o'clock in the morning by the time we'd washed the fifth or sixth times, washed them, some of those clothes. The Bible focuses on a stain called sin. I'm not afraid to use the word. It's something we need to talk about. He focuses, Jesus focuses on sin. Isaiah 1, 18 says it this way. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. They shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And the Lord says, when he looks at us and sees the stain, it's like this red blob. It's a crayon that's melted into your, your psyche, into your heart, into your being, who you are. And it is red like crimson. It, it's like scarlet. He says, come to me and I'll deal with it. Because what we're going to find out is only Jesus can remove the stain. Only Jesus can remove the stains that are in our life. And we're going to look at that. In in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to skip over a little bit just for time's sake. Go to verses 14 through 19. We're going to look at what causes what causes the stain in my life? What is it that causes that stain? Look at, look at Mark chapter 7. I'm reading out of the NIV. You can read out of whatever you'd like, or if you have your iPhone, go to the app and you can pick your version. But look at what it says. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean that is unwashed. Uh, And he's going to to have a parenthesis. He's going to explain this a little bit. It was not that they did not wash their hands. It was not like the disciples didn't know proper etiquette and good hygiene. That's not what he's talking about. You know, if I'm out working in the yard and I come in and I want a snack, I wash my hands. That's not what we're talking about. Look at what it says in verse 3. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders when they come from the marketplace. Why the marketplace? Because there were Gentiles there. And what do they call the Gentiles? Dogs. Not like our dogs that are spoiled, rotten, like vicious, rabid, horrible creatures that roam the streets and, and kill. And so they came from the marketplace. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. If you go to Israel today, especially in Jerusalem, but even in some other places, go to a public restroom, and what you will find in the restroom many times is a pot or a cup that has a, usually has a chain, and it's chained to the lavatory, and there will be signs in there that will say, do not use this for drinking. This is for washing. And so even though you washed your hands, then you had to have living water, water that was running, not that was still somewhere that could be stagnant, and then you had to ceremonially wash, drip the water down to your elbows, and then you couldn't touch anything. Look at verse 5. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And he replied... Jesus is talking back to them. And he goes back to Isaiah. I just looked at, we just looked at Isaiah 118. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Now, jump over to verse 14. He gives an example of that, that, about giving, but I want to look at something else he says in verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Three times he's saying, hey, pay attention. You know, that's about how many times it takes Kathy to, to get me away from the NFL game that I'm watching. to get, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Verse 15, nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Wouldn't you love to have been a disciple? You've been hanging out with Jesus, and he says, you guys are a little slow. You guys need to pick up the pace. Stay with me here. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. I want to look at this for just a moment. I want to look at just two things here. What causes a stain in my life? Well, sin stains my life. Number one, sin stains my life. Jesus and the religious leaders were debating this whole cleanliness, the cleanliness laws. We could go to Deuteronomy. We could go to some other places. But there were above and beyond what happened in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, in Exodus, when God gave them all of the commands, not just the Ten Commandments, but 613 Commands. 365 positive, the rest were negative, and and he was telling them specifically not to eat certain foods. They didn't have refrigeration. There was a reason for this, and he told them some things that they were supposed to do, and he he tried to focus, help them focus on the fact that they were to be different from all the other peoples of the world. We could go back and look at that, but see, the religious leaders took that 613, and they expanded it to about 40,000, they had rules on how you could wash your hands, how you couldn't wash your hands, how you could wash your silverware and your dishes and, and how you could dress, but certain things, and, and it just went on, and, and to the minutiae, it was micromanaging far more than, than any OCD person that you've known. I mean, it was completely off the chart, and they're, they're debating this, and And the, the that whole body of oral law is called the Mishnah. It was written down uh, about a hundred years uh, or so after Christ. Tim Keller, a, a pastor in, in New York, says this the Old Testament, in, in the Old Testament, if you touch a dead animal or a human body, if you had an infectious disease like a boil or a rash or a running sore, if you came in contact with certain moles and we 're finding out that black mold and other molds are very deadly and dangerous. Or if you came in contact with someone who had a bodily discharge, if you ate meat from an unclean animal, you were ritually unclean. You were impure. And literally the word that they used in the Old Testament was you were stained. You were stained. You could not enter the the temple when you were unclean, when you were stained. You could not worship the Lord you know you say today well those are arcane antiquated rules because we have a refrigeration I mean we can eat shellfish today we can have pork and and all these other things and and they're not dangerous for us and so it's not a big deal and 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 so those were just old-fashioned things we're stained not because of food not because of the way we wash our hands we're stained and we know it I, I can prove it to you if you have a big date, if, you have, if you're going to meet somebody for the first time, or if, if you're dating maybe, or if, if you're in your life where you're going to meet somebody that you're really impressed with, what do you do first? You, you, if you're a guy, you shave. You, you take a shower. If you have hair, you comb it. Some of us can get ready a little faster. You brush your teeth. You, if you're a woman, you put on makeup. You, you curl your hair. You do all of these things. You put on your best clothes. You go and why? Because you feel inadequate. And we want to put our best foot forward. We want to be as cleaned up as we possibly can when we go to meet this person. I I was reading an article this week. It said this, ancient people conjured up moral absolutes. Ancient people, like the people in the Bible, they conjured up moral absolutes. And they conjured up wrathful deities that they could appease to get better crops. But because of that, they lived in constant shame and guilt. And the article concluded, we know better. And the whole point of the article is there are no moral absolutes. This article says there is no right and wrong. We make the right and wrong. The article went on to talk about the only things that we need to worry about are human rights and dignity of the individual because everyone defines truth for themselves. Is that true? The the funny thing is the only moral absolute they have is that they're absolutely right. Have you noticed that? Try to argue with someone who doesn't believe in absolute truth. The only absolute truth that they have is that they're absolutely true and you're absolutely wrong. Well, I've got news for you. There's an, an eternal God, and he says what is right and wrong. We didn't have to conjure him up. He conjured us up. It's called creation. And that our God has told us what is right and wrong. The truth is we, we understand that it has not worked, Right? Did you notice on the news a little bit this last week a man by the name of Donald Sterling? Do you know who that is? Everybody immediately knows his name today. If I would asked that a week or two weeks ago, you would have no idea who this guy was. Billionaire who owns the uh, Clippers, not for very long it looks like. He had reprehensible racial remarks. He. You know, the things he, that came spewed out of his mouth should never have spewed out of his mouth. But the very people who say we make up our own right and wrong are the first people to judge him. They're the first people to say we need to grab his team and take it away. They're the first people to say fine him more than two and a half million. You see, the rules only work as long as they work in our favor. And God says that's not the way it works. We don't believe in judgment or sin, and yet we still feel like something's wrong with us. We still feel as if we were to be examined. If, if everyone knew what was in your mind, if everyone knew what was in your heart, in that moment in your life when you hope that nobody knows that anger or frustration or lust or fear or lie that you live, you feel like if you were examined, you would be found wanting. You wouldn't pass. Carl Menninger is a, a man that a lot of people don't know. In 1990, he was voted one of the by Life Magazine. He was voted one of the most significant individuals of the 20th century. Carl Menninger was not a Christian. He was a Jew. He was Jewish. He was a psychologist. He wrote a book in 1973 called "Whatever Became of Sin," and he started the Menninger Clinic in Kansas, in the in the state of Kansas. This is what he he wrote in his book. The very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was a proud word. It was once a very strong word, an ominous and serious word. It described a central point in, in every civilized human being's life plan and lifestyle. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? I think that's a hysterical comment. Doesn't anyone sin anymore? The answer is, of course, people, we do. Doesn't anyone believe in sin? He goes on, whenever you look at sin as either crime or symptoms, you're missing the essence of human right and wrong behavior. Again, this guy's not a believer. He's not taking this from a biblical standpoint, but listen to what he says. Whenever you take sin and turn it into crime, what you've done is taken God out of the picture because sin is committed between a person and God. Crime is malfeasance between two human beings. So if you call it a crime, you've really defined sin downward. Or if you take sin and turn it into symptoms, you've gone even lower. Because there you're talking about things like outward indications, or you're talking about heredity, or you're talking about environment, or you're talking about life choices and factors that infringe upon the outside. And Carl Menager went on, and, and, and basically he predicted a society. In 1973, he predicted this society in America that would be exactly what we see today. We'd be constantly striving to prove ourselves to others. We would constantly feel like we need to show others that we're worthy or that we're lovable or that we're good enough. Or that, and we were constantly striving to try to not disappoint anyone. What's really wrong with the world? Jesus is very clear. He says, we are. In an old comic strip called Pogo. How many of you remember the comic strip Pogo? Boy, did you just date yourself. Everybody 50 and down went, Pogo, is that a stick that you jump on? Comic strip named Pogo. At one point, the, the uh, lead character there, Pogo, says, we have seen the enemy, and it is us. It is us. It's exactly what Jesus says. Jeremiah 17.9 says it this way. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Or Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, The line between good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Sin stains my life. Whether we want to acknowledge that there is sin, that there's right or wrong, there is a God in heaven, and he has created right and wrong. Here's number two. Guilt stains my life. And guilt can cripple my life. Guilt stains my life. When Jesus is talking to them, the whole point of what he's saying with the Pharisees is they lived this guilt-ridden life and they heaped the guilt on everybody else. They, they devised the rules and if you didn't live up to their rules, then you were guilty. And guilt can just destroy us. And trying to take care of the problem on our own just makes it worse because we focus on the external if we were to go a couple chapters over, we don't have time, but if you went to Mark chapter 9, Jesus makes startling statements because he said, listen, if your hand offends you, if it's causing you to sin, cut your hand off. If your, if your feet are taking you somewhere that is going to bring you to sin, cut your feet off. And if, if your eye is causing you to look at something, to lust after them, gouge out your eye and you say, Man, there's gonna if if we really did that, you know how many handless, feetless, sightless Christians we'd have today? We'd all be blind and and we would have no hands and feet. Here's his point. If you're trying to do it from the outside in, it's a hopeless task because you're spending all of your time working on the outside. And doing that is like a having a fire that all of a sudden gets started in your house. If you were watching TV this evening. And, and you have this family room and you were sitting on the, on the sofa and on the other end of the sofa if, if, the, if maybe a lamp blew out and the electric cord came down and it started a fire on the, on the other end of your sofa would you just sit there and say hmm, that looks like it's on fire would you just let it burn because, I mean, it's, your house is not on fire. It's just one end of a sofa. It's just a cushion. It's not a big deal. There's no one in their right mind that would see something start on fire in their home and not do anything. But if we see sin in our life begin to ignite our life and we don't do anything, then the guilt can crush us is never going to be satisfied neither is sin i can't get rid of the feelings of guilt by ignoring it i cannot get rid of my feelings of guilt by trying to work on it from the outside in why because it is a heart issue did you notice in mark 9 i said hands and feet and eye i never said that the lord said if your heart offends you cut out your heart he knew that wasn't going to happen i've known a couple of heartless christians but that's a whole different story what he's saying here is there's there's something wrong, and we have all these systems, the, the religious system, which is what he was fighting against. There, here is is it's just clean up actions. It does not address our hearts. It, it's just. It's just you have these rules and and you're going to follow these rules. And and if you follow these rules, then God will be pleased with you and he'll be pleased with you enough that he's going to show you some grace. And that's not what it's all about because no matter how hard you try, you can't keep the rules. And it makes anxiety and guilt worse. How much is enough? How much is enough? I read an article this week from an imam, a, a Muslim imam, And he has lived all of his life, and and he's not one of these terrorist-type guys. There are plenty like that. But this imam is not one who's focused on terrorism. He's focused on what he calls the positives of the Quran, and he's lived all of his life. And everyone who knows him says, this guy is an incredible guy, and he's getting to the end of his life. He's 80 years old, and his question, somebody said to him, will you be going to paradise? And he said, who can know? Will it ever be enough? Who can know, will it ever be enough? The answer is no. Will never be enough. Or maybe your system is politics. What is wrong with us is not in the heart. It's in the program. It's, in, it's a lack of education. Or it's applying the proper science. Or, or maybe you don't live by one of those and you say, Well, I'm just going to live according to our society. Uh, you know, what our society thinks, which is probably the most dangerous of all. Um, I, I ran across one other article Uh, Christina Kelly is a successful editor of L Girl, YM, Jane, and Sassy. I'm proud to say I've actually never read any of those magazines. But she's a successful editor, uh, makes multi, probably close to a million dollar salary. And she wrote, uh, in in, uh, 2011, she wrote a piece, someone said, why have you walked away from this? Because she was making this huge salary. She's now writing books. But this is what she said, because I began to ask myself some questions, and here's the number one question I ask. Why do we crave celebrities? Here's my theory. Now get this. This next statement is, says everything about her. To be human is to feel inconsequential. To be alive means you don't matter. So we worship celebrities and we seek to look like them. All the great things they have done we identify with in order to escape our own inconsequential lives. But it's so dumb. With a stream of perfectly airbrushed, implanted, liposuction stars, you would have to be an absolute powerhouse of self-esteem already not to feel totally inferior before them. I love that. You know, airbrushed, implanted, liposuctioned. You know, you have to have this self-esteem through the moon. So we worship them because we feel inconsequential. But it does not make us feel But doing it makes us feel even worse. We make them stars, but then their fame makes us feel more insignificant. I'm a part of this whole process as an editor, and I needed to walk away. No wonder I feel soiled at the end of the day. What did she say? She felt dirty. She felt stained. And that's what happens. Jeremiah 2 Verse 22 captures exactly the guilt. Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Sovereign Lord. So what can we do? Why do we feel so guilty? Well, some of the reasons that we feel guilty are we are guilty because we've sinned. So what can we do? Who can remove it? What can remove the stain or who can remove the stain? Look back at at Mark chapter 7, just four verses. Jesus gives us an answer. And I'm going to start back at verse 19 again, because I want you to see something, something that we gloss over. For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, Jesus is saying, and then out of his body. We eliminate it through our gastrointestinal uh, system. In saying this, again, Mark gives an aside. He gives a parenthesis. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance. Ooh, I wish he had not put arrogance in that list. I was okay. No, I wasn't. But. And folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Who can remove the stain in my life? Number one, I need Jesus to cleanse me. I need Jesus Christ to do from the inside out what I cannot do. Jesus rips open the life and he says, do you see what's in your heart? In everyone's hearts, the potential is there in every person to have all of these thoughts. And it's very rare for Mark to do this, this interpretive comment. Occasionally he will do where he will explain it like he did earlier. This is what the washing of hands means. But in, in verse 19, he does an interpretive com- uh, comment. It says, Jesus declared all foods clean. All of the Greek experts, I have several commentaries, I check them all, and this is what they all say. He was not just saying that they were clean, he was making them clean. Get that huge difference. He was not just commenting on the fact that they really were clean at that moment when Jesus spoke, He made, He declared all things clean. All of the Greek experts point out that the same terminology is used when it says that Jesus, from the Logos, the Word of God, the Logos went out and declared the world, the universe, into existence. The same terminology was used when Jesus declared the earth and all of the universe to be in existence. It's the same terminology when Jesus came to the to the little girl who was dead and raised her from the dead. He says, I declare you alive. I, and he literally declared life back in this dead body. And when he's out on the Sea of, uh, of Galilee in, in the book of Mark, the same terminology is used. The only four times it's used in Mark. The other time is they're in the middle of the storm, and, and the, the disciples who are used to being out on the Sea of Galilee realize they're not going to make it to the shore. And they said, don't you care that we're going to drown? And he literally says, he declared calm. It wasn't just that the storm abated and went away. It was that the waves went from being high enough to come over the, the boat to absolute dead calm. If you've ever been out on a boat when, it's, when there are waves... You know that even if the waves go away, it doesn't get calm just like that. And on that particular day, everything went glassy flat. What's my point? Jesus had the highest respect for God's word. In Matthew, it says that not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will disappear until everything is accomplished. He was not just saying that the dietary laws didn't matter. He said, as of right now, I make all things clean. What's Jesus claiming there? He's looking at the disciples and he's saying, you understand your heart? I'm the only one who can make you clean from the inside out. I am the only one that can take the stain away. I am the only one who can make something that potentially could be deadly into something that would be fantastic. Do you understand in just that moment with the disciples, he's talking not about food, he's talking about the heart. He's talking about their heart and about their lives, and he's saying, I can take sin away. Jesus claims he's the only one who can clean the stain and allow us to stand before God. If you know anything about the tabernacle, if you know anything about the temple, the temple was built just like the tabernacle, and if you look at Hebrews, it's like the throne room of God. There was the Holy of Holies, and it's the holy place. The, the high priest would only go in once a year. And he would come through the holy place. And there were several articles there for incense and, and some other things. And then there was the outer court where they, the people could come and bring their sacrifice. But the holy of holies was a very special place. And Hebrew says that we can come boldly into the throne of grace. Into the mercy seat. Into the, the ark of the covenant. Into the place where God sits. The high priest would come once a year. Only on the day of atonement. Yom Kippur. And for seven days before that, for a week before that, he was secluded so that he didn't touch anything dirty, so that no dead animals, so that nothing could, could come close to him, so he couldn't get sick. They, they literally put him in isolation for seven days, and he prepared. He read the Bible, and he, and he focused on what God would have him to do. On the day that he went in, or the night before he went in, he would stay up all night and he would read the Old Testament, he would read the law, he would read about what he's supposed to do. And the morning that he went in on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, He would get up and he would bathe from head to toe. He made sure he scrubbed himself. They had brushes and a whole rigor to do to scrub from head to toe. And then he would put on clean linen. In fact, it was linen that had never been worn before. It was to be perfectly pure and clean. No spot, no stain. And he would take an animal, a lamb that was sacrificed, and he would take it into the Holy of Holies, and he would offer that lamb for himself. And then he would come back and he would scrub from head to toe again and he would put on all clean linen again and he would take another lamb and he would take it into the Holy of Holies a second time to offer it for all of the priests there. And then he would come back and he would scrub again from head to toe a third time and he would take a third offering and he would come in and he would offer that sacrifice for all of the rest of the people of Israel. He would do all of this changing and washing behind kind of a, a translucent screen and there would be people handing him clothes so that not, nothing touched the floor and they would hand him the sacrifices and they would hand him the things he needed and they would give him everything he needed and they would be cheering him on and all of the priests and all their families would be standing outside and it was this huge celebration and they would cheer and, and they would, they would, there was this huge noise on the Day of Atonement. In Zechariah chapter 3, the most amazing thing happens because there's a prophecy where Zechariah sees Joshua, Joshua, the high priest, and look what it says. Now, Joshua is dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel were the cherubim, the, the, those that, that were on the, the Ark of the Covenant. He was in the Holy of Holies. And the word filthy clothes literally means covered in excrement. He was dressed in these clothes with, that were filthy. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. What's the point? The point is that no matter how rigorous we are, separated for seven days, reading the Bible, the, the one man who is thought to be good enough and clean enough and perfect enough to come into before the Lord. And when the Lord looks at him, it's as if we are dressed in clothes filled with excrement. That we're filthy. That we're stained. Here's what's amazing. The word Joshua in the Old Testament is the same word as Jesus in the New Testament. Because another would come into the Holy of Holies. Jesus. And he would be our sacrifice. In verses 8 and 9 of Zechariah 3, it says, these are symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. John 15, we are, we're, Jesus is the vine, the branch, and we're branches off of the branch. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. The greatest news ever is that when you're stained, there's only one person who can clean that stain. Here's the second one. I need Jesus to give me a new heart. Centuries later, the new Joshua, the Jesus, came for the final day of atonement. Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, all the same in in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. And he began making preparations a week before he came on the triumphal entry. And he came to present himself as the Lamb, and they misunderstood and they thought that he was coming as the King. The night before he did not sleep, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed all night, Father, if this is your will, I will do this nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And what happened to Jesus was the reverse of what happened to Joshua, the high priest. No one cheered. Those closest to him betrayed him, denied him, abandoned him, and instead of clean, pure clothes, he was stripped and beaten, was given a robe for a little while, and then it was taken back, and he was killed naked. He was bathed from the top of his head to his bottom of his feet with people spit as they spit on him. Why? God made him who knew no sin to become righteousness for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That was the only way to deal with our heart problem. The truth is, my heart is not something that can be repaired, and neither is yours. You need Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 24, 7 says it this way, I will give them a heart to know me. That I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God. For they will return to me with all their heart. Just in the Old Testament, 2 Corinthians 3.3 3 says, You show that you're a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You know what is ironic is with the place where they sacrificed jesus it should have been done on an altar right in front of the temple but instead they took him outside the city and hebrews thirteen twelve says that jesus was also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood but where they really offered him was where they used to take dead animals that were unclean Yesterday on property income on, uh, on HGTV, there was a couple who bought this house and they were going to turn the basement into this apartment. They were going to make all this money and, and there was a tiny little stain in the corner and when they went in there, the guy who's the host of the program said, oh, it shouldn't be a big deal. He said, we'll just take up the carpet. We'll find out what that little water stain is in the corner. It won't be a big deal. And when they took up the carpet, all of a sudden the sub, there was a subfloor he didn't expect to be there and it was very wet. When they took up the subfloor, they realized that the walls were dripping water. And when they took down the walls, the stain went on and on and on. $18,000 to fix a tiny little spot in a corner. And the people were devastated. This young couple that thought they were going to get rich making this apartment out of this thing. And I thought it was interesting because I had already done my study and 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 I was thinking through what was happening. And I listened to him, to the host say this... He said, you can just never tell how far a stain goes by what's on the surface. And the Lord says, I've seen how far it goes and I'll take care of all of it and I'll start from the inside and work out. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? This is not the kind of message that you just listen and you walk away from. This has got to change us from the inside out. If your stain has never been taken care of, I'm going to offer you an incredible offer. I'm only offering it because Jesus Christ offered it to us. You can have all of your stain taken away by just coming to Jesus. You just trust him. You admit that you're a sinner. You repent. You ask him to change direction of your life. And he has said, I'm thrilled to do that. Father, you know the heart of every person sitting here today. The truth is, Father, my heart is so ugly. I'm Joshua. I've been covered in filth. And I just thank you, Father, for taking that off of me and giving me your robes of righteousness. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I never could earn it. And I could never deserve it but I love you for doing it anyway. And I thank you, Father, that you make that same offer to every person sitting here today. And just thank you, Father, for what you're doing in people's hearts and lives today. So change us from the inside out. Father, if there's one person who does not know you, may they not leave today until they make sure the stain is gone. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In a moment, we're gonna sing a song. If you know that your stain is not taken care of, you can come to the front at any point. We'll have one of the deacons come and sit with you while we're singing later on, after the service. I'll give you a couple of different opportunities, but we're going to look at at what happened on that night that Jesus was betrayed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He gives some practical information here. And the practical information is basically this. If you know that you have sin in your life, that you've not confessed, don't take this. Literally, he said there were some people in the church in Corinth who had experienced death because they made light of what God had given them. But if you know Jesus Christ, you don't have to be a member of this church. You can partake of this. You can remember what Jesus did on the cross for you, what he did for me. That's what this is all about. When the trays come by, you will find that there are two cups stacked one inside of the other. The top one is the juice. The bottom one is the little unleavened bread. And when when it comes to you, you can take that and you'll wait and I'll give you some instructions and we'll take it together. I'm going to ask Gary Dixon to come. I don't have a mic, Gary. You'll have to just go up here and grab one. I'm going to ask him to pray as we think about what happened when Jesus literally had his body broken for us on the cross.
1: Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with Thankful hearts, it's hard for us to imagine your mercy and your grace. It's hard for imagine, for us to imagine what you went through on the cross that night. But Father, we're so thankful. You took the beating that I deserved. You took the stripes that I deserved, and I'm healed because of those stripes. Father, because of your death on the cross, I can experience eternal life with you in glory. Father, we praise you for that act. We praise you for that amazing time that you went to the cross for everything that we deserve. Father, we can't imagine a son or a daughter of ours that had to go through that kind of agony, but you poured out yourself for us. We thank you. Help us, Father, during this time to remember all that you've done for us. And all these things we ask in your precious Son's name. Amen. Amen.
0: I'm going to ask those who are going to serve uh, communion to come on up. It was a very simple dinner. They were preparing for Passover. They were remembering what happened there. And in the middle of the dinner, they, Jesus stopped, and he took the unleavened bread, and it says he broke it, and he gave it to them. He was broken for you don't lose focus on that Jesus died for you and for me he says this about the the bread, do this in remembrance of me Father I've never used anything red to get a stain out I've never even thought of blood as the thing that would take a spot out of clothes or the carpet but your blood cleansed us Your blood paid for everything wrong we've ever done. Your blood was necessary for us to understand how hideous we really are when we rebel against you. And Father, we haven't just messed up. We haven't just broken our word to other people. We say with David in the Psalms, my sin is always before God. I've sinned against you, Father. Oh, forgive me, cleanse me, heal me. Thank you, Father, for all that you do. Thank you for your son and for this time when we remember what he did. We pray this in Jesus' precious name, because of his blood. Amen. He gave them the cup and he said, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You literally show forward what God is going to do, and he is coming back, right? We're going to sing one closing song. At the end of the service as you leave today, there will be a benevolence offering. Uh, You'll never know what your $2, $3 has meant to someone whose electricity was about to be cut off, what it means to a family who doesn't have any food when they have children. That's what this money goes for. It all goes to that. None of it goes to the church. It's all for... Uh, giving to those who have needs in their lives and in their families. So as you leave, you can give toward that as, as you leave. Let's stand together one more time and let's sing.